Welcome to C. diff spores and more with your host, Nancy Kerala. We are here to discuss C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and other related healthcare topics. Now, here is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome to the program today, and thank you so much for joining us today on C. diff spores and more. We would like to take this opportunity to thank our sponsor, Clorox Healthcare, Please visit Clorox Healthcare website, cloroxhealthcare.com, to learn more about keeping environments safer with Clorox Healthcare. Today, we are honored to have three special guests with us, Dr. Tex Kasun, Dr. Mark Ansermino, and Dr. Matthew Weens. Uh, our guests are here today to discuss moving from research to improving care and saving lives in sepsis. Dr. Kasun is a professor British Columbia Children's Hospital and UBC Global Child Health, Department of Pediatrics, Emergency Medicine University of British Columbia. Dr. Kasun, on November 10th, 2020, was elected the new president of the Global Sepsis Alliance, co-chair World Sepsis Day, International Pediatric Sepsis Initiative, and the Pediatric Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guideline Committee. Dr. Mark N. Sermino is a researcher clinician in the Department of Anesthesiology, Pharmacology, and Therapeutics at the University of British Columbia. He's the director of the Center of International Child Health and an investigator at the British Columbia Children's Hospital Research Institute. Dr. Ansermino co-leads the Digital Health Innovation Lab, a team of engineers and clinicians who are developing novel digital health applications to improve the health outcomes of children with sepsis. Dr. Matthew Weens is an epidemiologist and postdoctoral fellow from the Center of International Child Health at the British Columbia Children's Hospital and the University of British Columbia, and a visiting researcher at the Mabara University of Science and Technology in Uganda. Matthew has been conducting research examining the epidemiology of pediatric post-discharge mortality in Uganda since 2009. And we want to also let you know that sepsis is, um, September is Sepsis Awareness Month, and September 13th is World Sepsis Day. At this time, I would really like to welcome all three guests to our show. Welcome, doctors. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Nancy. Thank Glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. And Dr. Kasun, we're going to start and, you know, to kick it off the show the right way today. And we're going to ask you, why are most, the, why are most of the deaths in children with sepsis in low and middle income countries? Uh, thanks very much, Nancy. I think it's a very um, important question. Um, and if I'd like to start um, by telling you um, a little story of a study that was done, a landmark study published last year, which showed that there are 15 million cases of sepsis worldwide and 11 million deaths. And half of these deaths, uh, uh, half of these cases and 4 million of the deaths are in children. Now, 87% of the sepsis cases and deaths uh, in children are in low and middle income countries. So it's a very important area that we need to address. Now, as you already know, um, sepsis is uh, the end result of uh, organ, or, is organ dysfunction caused by any infection that may lead to disability and death. Now, why is it uh, more common in children in low and middle income countries? Is um, se- several reasons. One, 
um, when we look at the population in low and middle income, middle income countries, there's a mostly younger population. For instance, in sub-Saharan Africa, um, the average population um, uh, would be probably in the 18 to 20s. So it's very a younger population as compared to most of the developed world. In addition, these um, children live in a, you know, a denser population. They're um, sort of more crowded, crowded in their environment, and hence infectious disease can spread more rapidly. They are also more vulnerable, and the bottom line is poverty. Malnutrition is very common, such that uh, they cannot fight off infections very well. There are other infections and other diseases, such as TB, HIV, um, that would also make them more vulnerable to other forms of sepsis. The vaccination programs there is not, uh, is not as strong as our country, so there are less uh, children who are vaccinated for the common childhood illnesses. And also there is uh, poor access to health care. And this poor access, and uh, also, there's also poor uh, sort of health-seeking behavior. And that may be due to lack of information, um, lack of education. But because of uh, um, poor resilience in the health system, there are not enough healthcare workers, not enough equipment, not enough hospital beds, etc. The entire infrastructure is um, not geared to provide health for these children. So um, with all these factors um, put together, it seems as if it's really a, a perfect storm that um, it is not surprising in these parts of the world, um, these children are much more vulnerable and they suffer more from illnesses. And I think that um, right now the story of COVID-19 is not yet written and there may COVID-19, severe COVID-19 is sepsis. And in these countries, uh, we may see uh, large numbers of children uh, suffering from uh, uh, sepsis in the um, for foreseeable future. And I think that's the reason why you will hear more from Matt and Mark where they speak about our efforts in uh, sub-Saharan Africa and in other low-resource areas of the world uh, to really combat uh, this um, disease. Clearly, these areas do not have the resources we have, but a lot can be done. And um, you will hear from these guys uh, what we've been doing in the, in the following uh, um, few minutes that we have together. Thank you so I'll much, Dr. Kasun. Thank you for sharing all of that information and really important to know all this and we really can understand what you were saying and as you said Dr. Weens is joining us today and Dr. Weens what do we know about the secondary impact of sepsis after initial initial recovery and discharge? Yeah thank you um, you know I think ultimately we don't know enough um, and this is really what we're trying to actively um, engage with um, in our research programs, but, 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 but we are beginning to, to learn a fair bit about this issue. So what do we know? So first of all, we know that there's a massive burden um, of, of morbidity and mortality after sepsis um, in, in children, specifically in, in low and middle income settings. Uh, our, our work that we've been uh, conducting for the last uh, 10 years or so, um, as well as the work of other, other uh, um, groups in, in East Africa, has shown that as many children die, um, and sometimes more, after hospital discharge than, than during the initial admission. Um, in, in most settings where we work, uh, and the settings where this burden is, is the highest, 
actually, um, most children um, die at home, actually. Uh, so not only um, is there a major burden of, of death after discharge, but that burden often uh, occurs outside of the, of the formal health system. So often children will die either in, in transit or, or at home. Um, and, and I think we're beginning to recognize, and I think it's been recognized for, for, for some time as well, that, that the full recovery from sepsis takes, uh, takes months. Uh, and this really isn't, isn't unique to, to places like Uganda where I work. Um, but, it, you know, we even see this in, in, in high-income settings. Um, even in places like the U.S. or in Canada, uh, we see significant uh, vulnerability um, after discharge. It's, it's often measured in, in readmission, um, and there are fewer deaths. But nonetheless, we do see significant vulnerability after discharge. I, I've even listened back to some of your podcasts, um, and there are several episodes around um, post-discharge uh, issues um, with, with C. diff. And we see the same kind of things happening uh, with with sepsis, where children remain vulnerable um, in those months after um, initial improvements. Uh, I think um, one of the issues is that, that people often don't recognize that there is this persistent period of vulnerability um, after discharge. It's not sufficiently recognized, at least, at least by, by both health workers and, and caregivers. Um, but um, it, again, it's something that we're actively working on. Uh, so, um, but there are still uh, a fair number of gaps. Uh, we don't really know much about um, issues related to development or, or quality of life uh, after discharge. Uh, we know that um, in, in high-income settings, there's a growing recognition uh, that these sort of softer um, outcomes um, are, 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 are quite uh, prevalent. Um, uh, so we see in the U.S. a persistent um, uh, uh, developmental um, uh, uh, issues uh, during this post-discharge period, um, poor quality of life, oftentimes that persists for even up to uh, more than a year, uh, and and we think that in places uh, like uh, like the low-income settings, we would see potentially even a larger impact, uh, given that there's very little resources in place uh, to address these these issues. So uh, I think um, to, to sum up my, my point is that there's a lot that we don't know, um, but, we'll, but what we do know is that the burden is quite high uh, and, uh, and there's probably a, a fair bit of work still to do in this area. Absolutely. And thank you so much, Doctor. And at this time, we are going to pause for our first commercial break. When we return, we will continue discussing moving from research to improving care and saving lives in sepsis. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products. EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes. Trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. 
Join us for a special two-hour live online event taking place on Monday, November 1st, starting at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. It's C. diff Survivors Day, dedicated to survivors of C. diff worldwide. Sign up now at cdiffsurvivorsday.com to register for free and join a variety of guest speakers and a chance to network with C. diff survivors from all over. This live online event is sponsored by Series Therapeutics, leading the microbiome revolution. Register today at cdiffsurvivorsday.com and we'll see you online November 1st. Join us on November 4th and 5th for the 9th Annual International C. diff Conference and Health Expo. This will be a live two-day online event dedicated to healthcare professionals worldwide. For conference details and to register, please visit the conference website at cdiff2021.com or the C. diff Foundation's website at cdifffoundation.org and plan ahead for next year when we look forward to meeting you in person on November 3rd and 4th, 2022 at the Boston Logan Hilton Hotel. Have you done any of these things today? Exited a restroom? Entered and exited a patient's room? Visited a doctor's office? Have you done this today? Washed your hands? Handwashing remains the single most important task of the day. It takes soap, water, a minimum of 30 seconds, and a clean dry towel to turn off faucets and dry hands to stop giving germs a free ride. Keep safe from germs worldwide. Handwashing, number one in infection prevention. For additional information on handwashing instructions, visit cdifffoundation.org. You are listening to C. diff spores and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. And welcome back to the program. And thank you so much for joining us today. And today we have our special three guests, Dr. Tex Kassoon, Dr. Mark Ansermino, and Dr. Matthew Weens with us, who are here discussing moving from research to improving care and saving lives and sepsis. Such a fantastic and important topic of today, especially because September is Sepsis Awareness Month. So at this time, Dr. Matthew Weens is going to join us. And Dr. Weens, what can we do to improve post-discharge outcomes yeah, so this is really the holy grail of post-discharge outcomes research, and, and, and we're only beginning to scratch the surface of understanding the best approach to this. Uh, however, I think there are a few things that we've learned and that can be done um, uh, now to begin to, to address this burden. Uh, first of all, I think that um, we need to uh, recognize that there is poor recognition of the burden of post-discharge mortality. Uh, oftentimes, when I talk to families or health workers or policymakers, uh, the the fact that more children or as many children die after discharges in the hospital is often um, recognized with a, sorry, it, it, it is often received with some degree of surprise that it's as high as it is. So I think that general recognition is, uh, is an important key to uh, addressing it. And number two, specific recognition. Um, so that is recognizing the vulnerable child. I, I think Mark's going to address uh, some of the points uh, related to uh, risk prediction um, but I'd like to say a few words as, as well on this first. Uh, I think we have to understand who is likely to have a poor outcome after discharge. So we know that many children uh, are dying after discharge, but who are they and how do we know who they are prior to discharge? And this has been a major focus of our work. Uh, we, we have learned a fair bit here, actually, and, and we know that some of the most important characteristics of a child 
uh, uh, that that play a role in recurrent uh, illness and, and death. Specifically, we know um, that there's child characteristics um, as well as illness characteristics that play an uh, important role in prediction. Uh, for, for example, uh, uh, it's important to, it's important to recognize that malnutrition is probably the biggest and most important risk factor for post-discharge vulnerability. Children who are malnourished um, have a much slower recovery, um, and they're more vulnerable during that recovery. Uh, the severity of, of sepsis in their initial admission um, is, is also a key predictor um, of future events, and we've uh, uh, discovered a whole bunch of different markers that help us to understand which specific markers of illness are, are good risk predictors. And then, of course, there's social and economic situations with the child and the family, that play a major role. And text already alluded to the fact that poverty um, and, and education are, are, are real important aspects of vulnerability, and we've seen this also in our work. Uh, so we've taken a lot of these, these uh, uh, of our understanding of these factors and built um, risk prediction algorithms um, that can now allow us to differentiate children who are at high risk, those who are at moderate or low risk, um, and then our approach can be specific to the degree of risk of each child. Um, so we can ensure that the limited resources that we do have are, are used appropriately. Uh, third, we have to improve the discharge process. Um, discharges are, are often the last thing um, that are thought about during the hospitalization. I think that we need to sort of shift our, our recognition of the, of the relative importance of discharges. Uh, it's just not an afterthought. It has to be something that, that, that begins um, during admission. Um, oftentimes, uh, discharge is, is the last time that the most vulnerable interact with the health system. Um, as I mentioned earlier, most children who end up dying die out of hospital, um, usually at home or in transit, which means that their prior admission was the last time that they had contact with, with health workers. So we have to ensure that that last time is a, is, is a meaningful time um, uh, for, for that patient and, and parent interaction with the health system, um, and, and we have to improve that process. Um, number four, uh, related to the discharge process, um, it, 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 it's really important that we improve the transition from hospital to home. Uh, I think proper discharge planning can help ensure that follow-up is completed, that parents know uh, when and where to seek care, and, and that parents can be told what to expect during the post-discharge period. Oftentimes, when a child uh, gets a recurrent uh, illness, um, a parent is, is, is surprised that that, that child is, is still vulnerable. And I think it's really important that parents um, know what to expect um, in the weeks and months after discharge. Absolutely, Dr. Weens. All the key points you just pointed out are so very important. Thank you so much for sharing them with us today. And Dr. Weens, how do we move from a research context to improving care and saving lives in sepsis? Yeah, also also really important um, point. And in fact, I think it's, you know, um, it's an important, but it's an often neglected aspect of research um, uh, that researchers don't often, uh, you know, include uh, relevant policymakers and decision makers and, and, and even families in the planning of the research. Um, you know, uh, and we see a lot of this uh, occurring in, uh, in research in low and low income settings, but we do have a lot of solutions to problems, but the solutions are not always easily scalable. Um, in, in those settings. And I think it's important, um, and we've made it an important part of our work, is that we always include um, end users and policymakers 
and, and other key stakeholder groups in our work so that when we do uh, examine potential solutions, that we have solutions that are actually scalable. So I think that's, that's one really important part of, of how to move research forward into, into improving care. Um, I think uh, for us, uh, we are currently um, working a fair bit with the Uganda Ministry of Health um, and our NGO and academic partners, uh, getting uh, guidance from them as to how to best uh, approach um, uh, improving post-discharge care. Uh, we have... Um, Okay, I think we've lost Dr. Weens for a moment. Um, Dr. Kasum, can you complete um, or add to that question? Um, how do we move from the research context to improving care? Yeah, sure. So I think what uh, Matt was um, saying was very important. In other words, we can um, improve care and save lives by moving the research into uh, sort of what we call implementation, okay, implementation phase. Or there's a whole science around it now, implementation science or the science of delivery. And we have been doing some of that work. And what Matt, I think he stopped at a point where he was saying that you have to partner with those who are the providers of care. That's mean the healthcare institutions themselves, um, you, the healthcare workers, nurses, physicians, community health workers, and leaders, the opinion leaders, in which he has done a very good job with that with the Ministry of Health in a, uh, Uganda, and with the Ministry of Health adopting some of the um, findings from the research, then it is propagated across the country. But we have gone one step further where we, um, the, we have also involved the WHO, and they are very much interested in uh, what we are doing. And indeed, um, we have um, been encouraged to extend um, our work into other countries to see that this proof of concept works. So we've been working in um, uh, getting some work done in Rwanda, some in Kenya, some in Uganda, and we intend to do continue in other parts, both of sub-Saharan Africa and um, other parts of um, Southern Asia. I'll stop okay. there. I don't know if Matt is back on now. Okay. Yeah, I'm back on. Sorry, I got my drop. My, oh. my call got dropped there. I apologize. That's okay. That's okay. Dr. Weens, what are some of the major challenges in improving post-discharge care in LMIC settings? Yeah, I mean, I guess um, uh, as 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 I mentioned earlier, I think awareness is a is a really important issue. I think that um, you know all of our stakeholders have to be aware of this issue um, if we want our solutions to to be effective and to be adopted. Um, I think you know as as Tex mentioned um, earlier, I think that healthcare resources are, are are a big factor. I mean, they're a factor in in, in why sepsis is a major contributor to uh, to uh, childhood mortality in low-income settings, uh, but they are also a contributor to, to why post-discharge mortality is a major contributor. And I think, for example, uh, there's a human resource issue, so um, the, the general burden of illness is high in these settings. Um, and, 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 and when children are arriving at the hospital, often they're very sick. Um, and, and it's hard to emphasize post-discharge care when we often don't have enough resources for even for acute care. Uh, but there are two sides to this point, obviously, because, you know, um, uh, about a third of all admissions were actually recurrent admissions, some of which could have been preventable by better post-discharge care. So really, they all feed into each other. And I think that we really have to do emphasize the importance of post-discharge care as well. Um, obviously, there's uh, major infrastructure challenges. Uh, um, as Tex had mentioned, that these are um, not very resilient health systems. Um, and, you know, uh, there's... There's often different levels of care, uh, um, health centers uh, that we'll refer to higher-level health centers and hospitals. 
And I think that there's um, generally not sufficiently, uh, there are insufficient linkages between the different health centers. So I think we need to help improve those kinds of pieces. Um, Technology, of course, makes a lot of this uh, much easier. Um, For example, we have a lot of these algorithms, these prediction algorithms, but but they have to be embedded into some sort of platform. And I think that um, the the fact that many health centers and hospitals um, have poor technological solutions in them, computer systems, et cetera, uh, makes implementing these things more challenging. Um, Of course, poverty and economic hardship, I mean, a big part of good post-discharge outcomes has to do with good health seeking. So how do we encourage parents to seek care effectively? Um, It's oftentimes expensive and difficult to do. So, um, you know, there's not just an ambulance that can be called oftentimes to pick up a child for free. Um, These are economic burdens on parents. So um, we have to sort of try to find solutions that work um, in these sort of constrained settings. Um, and, and, of course, uh, research resources. I mean, it, in order for us to develop solutions that are effective in this particular context, we have to have the right kinds of resources to actually investigate these questions. So I think, you know, uh, as sort of a short answer, that that's sort of where I would, would land on that. Okay. Dr. Weens, thank you so much. And thank you so much for reconnecting. And uh, we are two minutes before we go to our commercial yeah. break. And Dr. Mark sure. and Sermino, would you like to add anything to the question here? Yeah, so, Nancy, I would really like to say, obviously, my expertise in, is in technology. And I think that in this post-discharge setting, we have some real opportunities that are introduced by technology to address some of these issues. And I think Matt um, mentioned that But just to say that I think that these opportunities would not be available if it wasn't for the advances that we've seen in things like uh, accessibility to to telephones. And you know this is something that even in these low-resource settings, most people will have some access to a mobile device. And this is something that's a real opportunity for us to take and use within these settings. Absolutely. And it's it's not just the the fact that they've got a phone, but we are also developing many new channels of communication that we can use. So everything from simple text messaging to having voice calls to having videos to using every type of technology that we would use in high-resource settings for this type of challenge, we can now take to a low-resource setting. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Ansermino. And at this time, we are going to pause for a commercial break. When we return, we will continue discussing moving from research to improving care and saving lives in sepsis. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products, EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes, trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. 
we'd like to thank Faring Pharmaceuticals for being the global sponsor of the 5th Annual Global C. diff Awareness Walks. To register and for more information, visit cdiffwalks.com. We look forward to raising C. diff awareness with you on September 25th. The walks are available on demand, live streamed, and in person in Teaneck, New Jersey, Spring City, Pennsylvania, and Newport Ritchie, Florida. You can walk with us no matter where you are. Again, visit cdiffwalks.com. We thank Ceres Therapeutics for being the sponsor of the Patient and Family C. diff Symposium. Ceres Therapeutics has reported positive top-line results from the Pivotal Phase 3 Ecospore 3 study evaluating its investigational oral microbiome therapeutic SER109 for recurrent C. difficile infection. To learn more about Ceres Therapeutics, please visit their website at seriestherapeutics.com. That's S-E-R-E-S therapeutics.com. Join us on November 4th and 5th for the 9th Annual International C. diff Conference and Health Expo. This will be a live two-day online event dedicated to healthcare professionals worldwide. For conference details and to register, please visit the conference website at cdiff2021.com or the C. diff Foundation's website at cdifffoundation.org and plan ahead for next year when we look forward to meeting you in person on November 3rd and 4th, 2022 at the Boston Logan Hilton Hotel. listening to C. diff spores and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to the program and thank you so much for joining us today. We are here with our three doctors, Dr. Tex Kassoon, Dr. Mark Ansermino, and Dr. Matthew Weens, discussing moving from research to improving care and saving lives in sepsis. Right now, I'd like to introduce Dr. Mark Ansermino to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today, Doctor. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. And Doctor, how can frugal digital health devices improve the recognition of sepsis? Right, Nancy. The first thing to realize that the clinical diagnosis of sepsis is really difficult, even for the experienced clinician. And the reason for this is that we need to do this really at the front line so we don't have days to wait for this, as we know that sepsis onset is usually very rapid, and we need to take these steps to give life-treating, life-saving care very rapidly. So we don't really have a specific blood test that we can say do very rapidly with that will say whether a child has sepsis or not. So we have to really rely on our clinical expertise, which is really signs and symptoms that we use to identify sepsis. And of course, this takes many years for us to be trained to be able to do this. But what we have now is we have the opportunity with digital technology to disrupt this paradigm of only relying on an expert and take some of this expertise and put it into a digital device so that we can then take a mobile device, a phone, to a frontline health worker and give them the ability to diagnose sepsis. And what this really means is we combine little pieces of information that may be quite subtle in a way that allows us to accurately determine whether a child has sepsis or not. 
So in the same way as digital technologies have disrupted what we do in shopping and in banking and everything, we believe that digital devices can really change how we recognize and manage sepsis. And of course, this overcomes the challenges that we were talking about before of access and affordability because we know that many people in these low-resource settings have access to mobile devices. And, of course, that makes it affordable, but it also makes it accessible, that this can happen anywhere in the world. So we can take this to any low-resource setting and have the same expertise as we could potentially have in a high-resource setting. Thank you, Dr. Ansamino. And Dr., can you explain how can artificial intelligence save the lives of children with sepsis? So, Nancy, you know, the way these digital devices are going to really help these children is by identifying whether they have sepsis. And to be able to do this, we need to use um, what we call artificial intelligence. Now, I'm just going to define that a little bit because I think some of your listeners may not be quite aware of what we're talking about in AI, and it's a big, scary term. But what we really mean is that we take this information that we get from patients. So this is usually from just questioning the families and doing some physical examination that we do as clinicians to measure some vital signs and some other critical measurements on these children. And we're able to combine this information in a way that goes beyond something that I could just do in my head, but is done with a fairly sophisticated mathematical algorithm. And this is what we call artificial intelligence. And what we can do with this then is we can really look at what I would do as an expert in trying to identify which children have sepsis and trying to use these subtle combination of features But now I can put this into a sophisticated algorithm and I can take that algorithm and I can give that to somebody who's not necessarily an expert. And all they need to do is add the information into the mobile device and they will then get a risk score that will tell them what is the vulnerability of this child. What is the likelihood this child is going to suffer from sepsis, is suffering from sepsis, when, as Matt mentioned previously, even if this child is likely to suffer from a problem when they go home after being um, having had an episode of sepsis. So we can really get a very good indication of what the um, vulnerability of a child is by using, using these algorithms. So the way that we go about creating these algorithms is that we collect a large amount of information, and most of artificial intelligence relies on this, is that instead of getting me, the expert, to try and make some rules that we can actually use to do this, we collect a very large volume of information from thousands of children, and then what we do is we know what the outcome of those children was following their treatment, and we develop this model with a computer that's able to take all of these things, find the subtle nuances in this information, and is able then to take this model that we've developed on this and apply it to the next child that will come to, to the sector that we'll be able to recognize whether they've got sepsis or not. So this is the process that we actually use while we develop these algorithms to be able to help us in identifying 
identification of these children with sepsis. Thank you, Dr. Ansamino, and thank you for defining artificial intelligence for our global listeners. And Doctor, so can you explain how technology will support quality improvement in sepsis? Yes, Nancy. So we know that recognizing the child with sepsis is not the only challenge that we have. So it's all very well for us to use these algorithms to you know, create, create this expertise that's able to take these subtle signs and identify which children need treatment. Mm-hmm. But we also need to make sure that much more happens to that child during the course of their treatment within mm-hmm. the facility, whether they get referred to a higher facility if they're really sick or whether they get other treatments that they might need um, in their ongoing care. And the issue we know in many of these facilities is the quality of care is really poor. And this is no different, in fact, to our high resource settings. We know that quality of care is a major problem in healthcare. And we also know that if we want to really drive this quality improvement, it's really essential that we're able to measure what the quality of care is. And one of the advantages that we have once we start implementing these digital health solutions is it provides us an opportunity to be able to measure exactly what we're doing at each step in the process of providing health care. And using this information, we can start quality improvement processes that would not be possible without this digital information. And we know in many of these low-resource settings that this low quality of care is even more important or a bigger barrier to um, outcomes, improved outcomes, than the lack of resources. So we know in many of these facilities they may have resources, but they're not providing those resources in a way that will provide optimal care for those children. So what we're able to do now, and we all know this in every part of our lives, if we're able to measure what we're doing, it makes, us much, makes it much easier for us then to start doing things better. And this is what we call this concept of quality improvement, and particularly ongoing quality improvement. And this is something that we do in high-resource settings in every single hospital, and this is something that we are um, certainly initiating in many of these low-resource settings, but using our digital health technologies to drive this quality improvement because we're able to measure things. And just to give you maybe a practical example with that, we know that the time it takes for a child to get an antibiotic when they've got sepsis is critically important. A delay of even one hour can increase their mortality by 8 to 10%. But with this technology, we can time exactly how long it takes for them to get the antibiotic and use that feed that back into the system that's able to drive this quality improvement. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Doctor. And, Doctor, can you explain how technology improves the training and evaluation of healthcare workers who treat the children with sepsis? Right, Nancy. So, just as we mentioned before, obviously having the ability to have a digital interface, have some sort of computing device, whether that's a tablet or a computer or a phone, provides a mechanism for communication. But it also 
as we said, we're able to collect some of this information together. So this provides a huge opportunity for us to provide training. Um, and we also know that we've all learned during this current pandemic how important virtual learning has, is. But we know in these settings where often they don't have trainers to be able to provide the training, we can now use the digital technology as a virtual platform for us to try and provide some additional training. So we've provided lots of training now around particularly these quality improvement exercises, but also in how to actually use our digital health devices. But we also have the opportunity to go even further than that. And we have the opportunity that while people are actually using these devices, we can see exactly how well they are using the device. And if they're not using it appropriately, we know who needs training. So we can totally focus our training in the, and target it to those individuals that need for training the most and exactly on what aspects they need to be trained. And we can also use this really as a feedback mechanism and incentive that can help them to improve the care that they are delivering. And in addition to this, we can provide what we call just-in-time training, where we can look for opportunities where instead of having a separate session where we go and book a training session, while these um, frontline health workers are actually dealing with the children, we can push in little bits of training or education that goes in real time that enables them to use the system better. So these are all additional opportunities that we have that are enabled by the technology to move us forward in training our front care, uh, frontline healthcare workers. Another That's more. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. That we will see come, coming. You know, I'm just going to say this is something that we're going to see come back to us in our high resource settings, and we like to call this um, reverse innovation because it's kind of innovation happening that, you know, in many of these low-resource settings, we've been forced to have innovation to be able to address these problems. But we certainly, when you talk about sepsis, we see all of these innovations that I've talked about technology today coming back into our high-resource settings. So we have the same problems with not recognizing sepsis. We have the same problems of quality of care that we need to do. And we can really use the same technological solutions to bring that back to our high-resource settings. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Ansamino, for all the information you provided us today. And at this time, we are going to pause for a commercial break. When we return, we will continue discussing moving from research to improving care and saving lives in sepsis. Please uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products. EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes. Trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. 
we thank Faring Pharmaceuticals for being the sponsor of the January 28, 2022 C. diff patient, family, and caregiver live online symposium. To learn more about Faring Pharmaceuticals, please visit faringusa.com. Join us on November 4th and 5th for the 9th Annual International C. diff Conference and Health Expo. This will be a live two-day online event dedicated to healthcare professionals worldwide. For conference details and to register, please visit the conference website at cdiff2021.com or the C. diff Foundation's website at cdifffoundation.org and plan ahead for next year when we look forward to meeting you in person on November 3rd and 4th, 2022 at the Boston Logan Hilton Hotel. Have you done any of these things today? Exited a restroom? Entered and exited a patient's room? Visited a doctor's office? Have you done this today? Washed your hands? Hand washing remains the single most important task of the day. It takes soap, water, a minimum of 30 seconds, and a clean dry towel to turn off faucets and dry hands to stop giving germs a free ride. Keep safe from germs worldwide. Hand washing, number one in infection prevention. For additional information on hand washing instructions, visit cdifffoundation.org. You are listening to C. diff spores and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to the program, everyone, and thanks so much for joining us today with our three special guests, Dr. Tex Kasun, Dr. Mark Ansermino, and Dr. Matthew Weens. We've been here discussing moving from research to improving care and saving lives in sepsis today. And at this time, I'd like to welcome all three doctors back to the, back to the program. Welcome back, doctors. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Dr. Kassoon, would you mind um, sharing some closing comments with our listeners and some key points? Sure. No, thanks very much. I think this is a very opportune and um, important topic. And uh, I hope that um, uh, your listeners recognize that sepsis is a global threat, uh, both across the world, high and low income countries. And in fact, um, this is well exemplified by the COVID pandemic. As I said, severe COVID is sepsis, and one can see that borders do not make us immune from any um, sort of infection. As Paul Farmer said, uh, who's a global health worker at Harvard, he said that borders are permeable to infections. Infections cross across borders very easily, yet policy, medications, finances, etc. stop at borders, yet we have the only way we can protect each other is that if we sort of look beyond our doors and out beyond uh, our own uh, countries and protect the world. Um, The vision of the Global Sepsis Alliance, of which I'm president, is a world without sepsis. And this is really a a very um, sort of um, laudable and visionary goal. And I think um, with what you've been hearing, that sepsis, there are simple tools that can prevent sepsis such as vaccination, better nutrition, preventing other uh, common uh, childhood diseases, et cetera, and treatment, um, simple treatment that can be given in the most austere environment, we have a chance to prevent uh, sort of and preventable sepsis. 
the Global Sepsis Alliance website um, is, has a lot of resources, and with World Sepsis Day on September the 13th, um, there are a lot that is going on then. I would suggest that uh, um, uh, you go to www.global-sepsis-alliance.org and get the information. My final sort of closing uh, remark is that uh, we should realize that with sepsis and severe infections, we are all in the same we are all in the same storm worldwide, but we are not in the same boat. And this has um, uh, clearly, with my colleagues, has shown this. Thanks very much. Thank you, Dr. Kassoon. And Dr. Ansamino, if you wouldn't mind sharing some closing comments with our listeners and some key points. Thank you very much, Nancy. And I think that sepsis is, as we've all heard, a hugely important global health problem. But I think that it's very hard for those of us who have not been affected by sepsis to really see the importance. But I would really urge you today to contemplate this and just if you have not been impacted by sepsis, just realize how fortunate you are that this hasn't affected you or your family. But the likelihood that this is going to affect somebody in your family is very high. I'd also like to say that we are always looking for people who want to help. And that is around collaborators. Obviously, if you have some expertise, whether that's technical or medical, that you want to be engaged with us, we're always very welcome to have collaborators. But even if you don't have expertise in this area, we are always looking for donors and other organizational people to help us as we move forward with this fight against sepsis. And we realize that this is a challenge that we all need to take on and work together to make sure that we can save the lives of these children in low-resource settings, but also in our high-resource setting. These children who are um, getting infected and suffering the severe consequences of these infections. Thanks very much, Nancy. Thank you, Dr. Ansermino. And Dr. Weems, would you like to share your closing comments and key points? Yeah, sure. Um, thank you, Nancy. I, I think I think if I'm going to say anything, I'll say that you know, oftentimes when we think of sepsis, we imagine uh, somebody in an ICU or on a ventilator, or someone very very ill. But I think that we have to recognize that sepsis um, is definitely something that um, uh, affects us even beyond this sort of acute hospital phase, uh, and and in fact, um, it is is a really important um, uh, contributor to morbidity to, to, to severe illness and and all that after discharge. And I think that we see this obviously in, in low-income settings um, and in high-income settings. And I think the other added thing I want to mention is, you know, um, so Mark talked a lot about AI and artificial intelligence, uh, risk prediction. I think that um, a big part of what we do, obviously, is, is, we, is, 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 is we try to take the, uh, the risk prediction piece and, and combine it with, uh, with innovative programs to improve outcomes. And, and, and we've been working very hard with our partners in Uganda uh, and, and elsewhere in East Africa to develop what we call smart discharges so we can sort of combine all the aspects of what Tex and Mark talked about with trying to improve um, outcomes after discharge in children and, and, and hopefully bringing some of these innovations back to, to our settings here in, in Canada and the U.S. and elsewhere. Um, and, and as Mark mentioned, we're, we're always very keen for collaborators, uh, 
other uh, partners um, in, in this work. And yeah, we'd be loving to, uh, to, 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 to talk with any of you uh, who are interested in this um, more. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Weens. And we still have three minutes before we close the show. And I'd like to ask Dr. Weens, do we have any clinical trials in progress right now for sepsis or any of the research going on? Yeah, so um, we're, we're currently doing some interventional studies. They're not, they're not randomized trials, um, but we're doing uh, before-after studies of, uh, of a variety of interventions in children under six months and, and between six months and five years to look at um, our sort of post-discharge, um, our smart discharge program, which is essentially linking uh, risk prediction with, uh, with sort of an innovative approach to uh, education and post-discharge follow-up. Uh, and that's sort of in the latter stages. So hopefully we'll get some information from that. Our preliminary evidence has shown that um, we're, we're, we are likely to produce a, a reduction in, in mortality, um, but we're still waiting for the final you know, patients to be enrolled and followed up to see how, how it seems to have impacted uh, children uh, with sepsis. But in terms of other studies, there's not really any other randomized trials um, of this nature. There, there have been some studies looking at um, antimicrobial use um, in children who have acute illness, and um, but there hasn't been much in terms of um, any effects demonstrated. There's a little bit of work around uh, severe malaria um, and using antimalarials after discharge, um, and that's shown some potential promise. Uh, so it would be sort of malarial sepsis, I guess. Um, but there's really very limited data out there currently. Okay. Well, thank you so much, yeah, Dr. Weens. Go ahead, Dr. Kasun. Yeah, I'd like to add also that uh, one of the areas that we've been exploring is the bond between mater- mother and newborn because uh, when a newborn child um, is ill, it's likely that the mother is ill and vice versa. So the mother-newborn diet is very important. And in the low- and middle-income countries especially, there's uh, the issue of um, you know, n- a very poor uh, perinatal uh, sort of care there's also the issue of uh, clean deliveries, which may not occur, and uh, the mother-child bond, we are now recognizing that as a major problem, and we are doing some work in that area also. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Kassoon, for sharing that additional information. And right now, we'd like to thank all of our doctors joining us today, Dr. Tex Kassoon, Dr. Mark Ansermino, and Dr. Matthew Weens for joining us. We also thank you so much for your dedication in the healthcare community, especially focused on sepsis. I'm your host, Nancy Corrala. And with our reminder that none of us can do this alone, all of us can do this together. We wish you good health, we wish you continued healing, and we wish you a good day. Thank you for tuning in this week for C. diff, spores, and more. Be sure to join your host, Nancy Kerala, again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, that's 1 p.m. Eastern Time, for another edition of our program on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. None of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together.